Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host as we work our way through the Spurgeons preached by the Victorian pastor, preacher, evangelist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This week we've reached sermons 766 to 772. Each week we read daily a sermon and for those who uh, don't want to read that much or aren't able to uh, read to such an extent, we choose a featured sermon and we make that the topic of this weekly podcast. This week we've reached sermon 769, 769, serving the Lord with gladness from the simple text of Psalm 100 verse 2, which is essentially that language, serve the Lord with gladness. Next week, we're going to move on to A Sharp Knife for the Vine Branches, Sermon 774, and we hope you'll come back for that. And we've now got a good number of these podcasts available. Uh, you can find them at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter, which will include a link to this featured sermon. This particular sermon was preached on the 8th of September 1867 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. It was a Lord's Day morning sermon. It begins with the simple statement that much of the sweetness of music lies in the ear to which it is addressed. So, serve the Lord with gladness is a delightful sonnet to the spiritual mind, but to the ungodly, the careless, the unspiritual, it is flat and dull, the grinding of labour's wheel and far other than a verse from a cherub's harp. And in a a structure that's perhaps you might say reasonably puritanical, uh, Spurgeon takes a few moments, first of all, to expound his text. He's dividing it up. He's drawing out its key elements. And so he has three that he wants to identify. The very first word is serve. And he says, The proud spirit of unregenerate man kicks at once at that idea. Why should I be a servant? I hate the yoke. I'll not bow my neck. But the renewed mind accepts Ichdin, I serve, as their motto and feels ennobled by it. And then the golden canticle of labour gives us another notion. Serve the Lord, even more distasteful to the carnal mind. Men's hearts are naturally atheistical. They will not endure the thought of God. Even if they would accept that they ought to serve, the idea of serving God is a misery to them. But to serve God is to reign, says Spurgeon. He who obeys the king of kings is himself a king. And then the next word of my text contains the rarest sweetness of it. Serve the Lord with gladness. That, he says is utterly beyond the mere carnal mind. Any connection between religion and gladness seems to the most of men to be very remote indeed. So the worldling's religion, it's beautifully constructed, well put together, everything to the eye that could be expected, but no winged delights ever alight thereon, no joyous thoughts find honey there. As for the true believer in Jesus, he serves his God because he loves to serve him. He assembles with the great congregation because it is his delight to worship the Most High. To him it is the greatest of all earthly joys and the antipast, the the foretaste of joys celestial, to serve the Lord with hand and heart and strength and to spend and be spent for his glory. So then, in the text, gladsome service is commended and commanded. And he says, I want you to notice its secret springs. 
then it's manifest streams, then it's particular difficulties, then it's true excellence, and then a conclusion. So really having established this principle, he's going to interrogate it. Where does it come from? Uh, what does it look like? Why is it difficult? And what is its particular excellence or sweetness? So four simple points arising out of that straightforward exegesis of the text. And again, that may be a helpful structure uh, for some of us who preach. Uh, not the only thing that we can do, but if we're preaching these kinds of sermons, then we need to make sure we're handling the text carefully. So then, the gladsome service of God has its secret springs. And this is really where Spurgeon, if you will, uh, lets himself go in the service of God in this sermon. He's going to uh, try and tell us a sampling of the reasons why we have joy in serving God. One main cause, he says, is that the believer is free from the bondage of the law and so serves God with gladness. When the believer serves the Lord, it's with no idea whatever of obtaining eternal life thereby. The heir of heaven serves his Lord simply out of gratitude. He has no salvation to gain, no heaven to lose. All things are his by a covenant ordered in all things and sure. And now, out of love to the God who chose him and who gave so great a price for his redemption, he desires to lay out himself entirely to his master's service. So he's not a slave serving for freedom, but a free man serving for love. He's not uh, laboring in order to win some prize, but he is serving because he's been gifted so much. Nothing can cover a naked soul but the righteousness of our Lord Jesus. And so uh, to, to try and weave our own robe is just a, a horrible and miserable expression. The child of God works not for life but from life. He does not work to be saved, but he works because he is saved. Not selfishly, nor because of fear, but gratefully, joyfully, heartily, out of true affection, the true servant of the Lord waits at his master's doors. Yes, we're looking for the smile of God. Yes, we're eager to have the well-done, good and faithful servant. But it's the smile of our Father. It's the, the, the anticipation that our Master, who's made us his own, will be pleased with us. We're not working because we want God to love us. We're working because God does love us. Do you not see then how we can serve the Lord with gladness? Because when we make mistakes in serving God, we know they will not destroy us. Notwithstanding the thousand infirmities and imperfections of our service, we know that Jesus washes all away in his precious blood. When we sit down sometimes after a day's seeking to honour God and deplore that we have so greatly failed in it, we do not despair, for we know that the righteousness which covers us has not to be spun by these fingers. We rejoice that we are accepted not in ourselves but in the Beloved, and so we rise again and go once more to serve the Lord with gladness, because we are still his Beloved, still dear to him, notwithstanding ten thousand slips and flaws and errors and mistakes, still in his covenant, still saved. There is such a great balance in that. Not that our works are perfect in themselves, but that our perfections are in Christ Jesus, that they've been, Christ's righteousness has been put to our account and our falling short does not then carry us back out of the covenant because we are secure in Christ Jesus. 
So we still seek to serve him and to serve him well, but we do so knowing that our standing with God does not hinge upon our righteousness, but Christ's. Then again, the Christian serves God with gladness because he has a lively sense of the contrast between his present service and his former slavery. We were in bondage, now we are truly free. We were uh, dead in trespasses and sins. We were convinced and therefore miserable and empty. And yet now we gaze into the eyes of Emmanuel, the Prince of Princes, the fairest among 10,000, the altogether lovely. And we feel that whatever service we can render to him is in comparison with the miseries of the bondage of sin, utter pleasantness and delight. Then the believer's joy in the Lord's service springs from the fact that he loves God from the instincts of his new nature. He's put into us impulsive, energetic instincts which push us forward or restrain us as the case may be. We, we naturally desire to please God and we naturally wish to avoid displeasing God. And the genuine Christian then, full of the love of God, says Spurgeon, cannot be an idler. We're looking for ways to honour the Lord. It's, it's, it's the expression of our new heart. To serve God causes the exercise of faith, and to exercise faith is one of the grandest pleasures to which a mortal can attain. Hence, to serve God with faith and confidence must be delightful. Then again, another reason why the Christian is conscious of great gladness in serving God is that he has a sense of honour with it. It is a, a, a rare privilege to be allowed to serve the King of Kings. Can we then do service to our Redeemer? Is, is he who is altogether holy, entirely self-sufficient in all his being and doing, is he going to receive what we bring to him? Then what an honour it is to serve him, that we can bring what, what may seem in itself so, so petty, which is not needful to God in any absolute sense, and yet God is pleased to receive it from us. Shall we be altogether insensible to the motive of honour? Shall we not feel it our greatest glory to serve our God? And will there not be from this a stream of joy flowing over all our holy work? You see how he's heaping up these reasons why the believer's service is joy. Then the believer knows that his service is not the highest place which he occupies. I'm a servant, he says. I'm not ashamed of it. To serve God is a royal dignity but then I am not altogether and alone a servant. I am a son. I belong to the household. I am a child in the family of God. I am a friend to the God of heaven. He has looked upon me in kindness. God, Jesus Christ has become my elder brother, and that enables us to do more than a servant could do and gives us a gladness in our service which the mere servant cannot understand. And then there comes over the Christian's mind a gentle thought which in his darkest moments yields him joy, namely that grace has promised a reward. It may be that for the present he toils on and no one gives him a good word. He sows the thankless flood and no harvest springs from the bread cast upon the waters. But he can afford to wait. He has not measured things by the narrow inch of time, but he has taken a broad eternity into his consideration and he knows that the time shall come when those that diligently serve on earth by faith in Jesus Christ shall participate in the glories of the coming King 
and the bliss of the eternal inheritance. These then are some of the things which, and notice only some of the things, which give cause to and sustain the Christian's gladness when he is engaged in service. Before we move on to Spurgeon's second point, notice that we actually have to think about this. We've got to consider, ponder and meditate upon these things. It's only when we dwell upon God's great grace to us in Christ, the love with which we've been loved, the privileges and the honour that comes with it, the prospects that lie before us, the identity that's bestowed upon us, the reward that is held out to us. These things need to be considered. It's not a mere statement of them, really not even the preaching of them. They need to take root in our souls and we need to think about these things until they grip us. And that's that's not always easy. And we don't always make and take the time to do that. But without a pondering upon these things, without a holy meditation upon these truths, we will always struggle to find joy in service because we will have blocked up the springs from which that joy derives. Secondly, though, says Spurgeon, trace some of the manifest streams of Christian service in their gladness. So he's asking, if that's where the joy springs from, where do you see it? Where does it flow forth in evidence? And he says, in the first place, always with gladness in the public assemblies of his people. The more hypocritical a people are, the more solemnly miserable their outward aspect when at worship. As a general rule, I believe that those places of worship where it is thought to be wicked ever to have smiling faces are dens of formalism where there's no life of God at all. Well, that's... Uh, pretty straight talking to say the least. Um, it's a, a point that we need to take to heart though, isn't it? Uh, to, to make sure that we don't imagine that performed misery is considered to be a true index, index of real spirituality. I like to see you coming up to this place, not as if you were going to a jail, says Spurgeon, but like children coming from school and going home to their father's house. It's a blessing to gather together. An English Sabbath is called by many a dull and dreary day. Ah, ye miserable heathens, well may you speak so. It must be dreary to you. But to the genuine Christian, the thought that the world's burden is laid aside and that now he's to commune with heaven is the sweet sound of the trumpet, waking him to a day of feasting and delight. I've tried to address some of this myself in a, a short book. You may be interested in it called Our Chief of Days published by Evangelical Press, the positive beauty and glory of the day of days, the, uh, the, the first day of the week, that day of resurrection, which comes round to us every seventh day when we can enter into communion with God. So when we come up to the house of God, says Spurgeon, what is there to make us sad in that place? Is there not everything to make us happy? Shall we sing the praises of God dolorously and imitate the worships of Moloch who serve him with shrieks and groans? No, the God we adore is to be praised with happy hearts and smiling faces and joyful notes. And when we pray to him, shall we be sorrowful? To pray to our father, a child to spread his wants before his father, can that be bondage? No, blessed be his name. If there be a sweet place on earth, it is the mercy seat where earth communes with heaven. And when we listen to the reading of the word of God or the preaching of his truth, shall that be a weariness? Yes, when we have no part or lot in it. 
when it's like reading a will in which we have no legacy. But if the gospel be preached as our gospel, the gospel of our salvation, and we have a share in it, what can so inspire our soul with joy? Yes, let the bells of your heart ring merry peals on the Sabbath. Oh, you chosen seed, be glad. And of all the days in the week, look at the first as the prime glory of all the feast days of the soul. Do not pull the blinds down. Let the sun shine into the room more cheerily than on weekdays. Your God is happy and would have you happy. And if all the other six days you have to bear your burdens, yet at least cast them aside on this resurrection day when you must not slumber in the grave of sorrow. What a beautiful portrayal of the Lord's day. And what a reminder to us, how do we go to the house of God? How do we gather with the saints as the living temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells? How do we approach our acts of worship? Is it with delight to draw near to God so that perhaps even in times of distress, that's where we're, we find our, our deepest joys uh, as well as our uh, highest delights? But, says Spurgeon, and there's good balance here as well. Uh, I think I'm so glad he begins with the public assemblies of his people, emphasizing the, the primacy, the priority, the particular sweetness of the, uh, the gathering of the saints for worship. But in ensuring that we prioritize that against some of the diminution of it that's happened in recent years, we must also remember that it is not only there that we worship. We do not mean, he says, that we only serve God when we come to a place of worship. That would be uh, to become a hypocrite. There are no true places of worship for a believer because all places are places of worship. We ought to be in a worshipping frame of mind everywhere. So it's not the building itself, says Spurgeon. The occasion, yes, that's wonderful. But remember that we serve God everywhere. He gives us some examples. It's the family altar, family devotions. Do we embrace family worship? It's a great mistake when the Christian parent makes the reading and prayer in the family a dull, monotonous work. Let's be cheerful and happy at family worship. In your private devotions, also, says Spurgeon, you should be serving the Lord with joy, with delight, with pleasure, with eagerness, with uh, with 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 a heavenly sense of, of his favour. What about when you're in the shop? What about you're in the farmyard, in the market, buying and selling? You can be serving God there quite as well as in singing and praying. Look upon your business as a means of serving God and you will perform it with gladness. It might be a hard place, but God has put you there. If you can't see a way out, accept what God has given and accepting it from a father's hand, you'll be able to serve him with gladness. So this real religion goes through us, with us through all the acts of daily life, but a sham religion which only shows itself is when a man is on his knees. So really helpful here. Uh, Spurgeon isn't saying neglect the gathered worship, nor is he saying only indulge or engage in, in gathered worship and then go out and live how you please. True religion is not just when a man is on his knees. Sham religion only shows itself when a man is performing his worship. True religion begins when a man is on his knees before God and then carries out through all the acts of daily life. 
Oh, beloved, he says, let our religion show itself through the whole of life. Let's go about our business with a holy gladness because we are serving the Lord. Let's be diligent in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord and putting gladness into the whole thing. Above all, he says, let gladness sparkle in all those actions which we feel called upon to perform for our master's service. So in any distinct act in which you're serving God, in any particular gospel endeavour specifically, make sure that gladness sparkles. Dear Sabbath school teachers, make the Sabbath happy and your children happy by serving the Lord with gladness. It doesn't mean with a fixed grin on your face, some kind of rictus smile as if you've been injected with something that freezes up your face muscles. City missionaries and Bible women do not go round your districts as though you are undertaker's men, but go there with gladness, serving the Lord. Preacher, throw your soul into your work. Do whatever you undertake to do for the master with a soul flashing with fire. Look upon it not as bondage but joy and serve the Lord in it with a sacred alacrity and delight. So he says, when you gather for worship, be glad in the Lord. When you go out into the world, show gladness in your service. When you render some particular gospel labour to God, do it with gladness. And in this way, you show that you truly serve the Lord who has saved you. Now, he says, he knows that someone say, some might say, it's easier to have this than to practice it. It's easy to tell us to serve the Lord with gladness. Does the preacher himself always find it easy to do so? Well, he says, this isn't the place for the preacher to make confessions, but he is quite prepared to admit that it is not always easy to serve God with gladness and that if it were, we should not need to be told to do it. But on account of the difficulty of it, we are therefore the more often bidden to be happy. So this is, remember, not just a commendation, but a commandment. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Why is it so difficult? Spurgeon gives two very brief answers to that. First of them, our inbred sin. O wretched man that I am, cries the Christian, who shall deliver me? Yes, through Christ Jesus our Lord, we shall be delivered from the bondage of our corruption. So we're sighing over infirmities and we're grateful that there's a reason to glory in our infirmities because the power of Christ is manifested therein. But there are also outward trials. How hard to serve God with gladness when losing an estate, when the cupboard is bare, not enough money to provide the children with clothes. So Spurgeon could have been talking about uh, many today with the, the economic downturn that seems to be happening in so many parts of the world. But he says, the Christian doesn't live upon what he sees alone. There's a secret strength, a secret helper. He knows how to go to God in times of outward trouble and cast his care upon him who cares for him. So he says, if you cannot touch the harp strings, yet still serve him. And by and by the Lord who gives you grace to serve will give you grace to sing. For though you be a stranger, yet you are a stranger with your God. He is with you and you are a sojourner with him. Though in the midst of the ungodly you walk as in a furnace, yet when the three holy children were in the fire, there was a fourth with them. And so there is one with you like unto the Son of God. Brothers, we are not to take up those duties which we think to be easy and to leave those which we think to be difficult, 
but the more difficult the command of God may seem to be, the more earnestly must we set ourselves to carry it out by divine aid. The text, serve the Lord with gladness, may seem to be very difficult to those of a gloomy temperament or depressed spirit or those who are under trying circumstances. But, O beloved, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. What sense says is impossible, faith accomplishes. Therefore, let us lift up our hearts and say, Heavenly Father, help us to serve thee with gladness according to thy command. So there's this real exhortation here. Yes, it is difficult. Our inbred sin makes it so. Our outward trials make it so. But faith goes on serving in anticipation of gladness to come. We must never say, I will only serve the Lord when I feel glad. But we serve the Lord in anticipation of gladness, even where there may be a difficulty in attaining to that gladness to begin. So Spurgeon here has got his primary emphasis, but he's making sure there's this wise awareness of other dimensions. And finally then, the fourth heading, in the last place, there's much excellence in cheerful service. It's possible that when we serve the Lord with gladness, the first part of that excellence, the first element, is that we thereby escape many fatherly chastisements which might otherwise come upon us. I was wondering whether if we receive God's mercies and do not serve him joyfully, says Spurgeon, it may not be more than probable that he will withdraw his hand of mercy for a while and make us smart under the hand of chastisement till we humble ourselves before him. While we have the power to serve God then, let us do so with gladness, being thankful that we're enabled to do it, or else it may be, seeing us prove unworthy of those things, God may make the sky to be covered with cloud and send us dark days and bitter seasons. Then, doesn't God deserve to be served with gladness? When we get to heaven, if we could have regrets, would not this be one that we had not served him better? And then, if we're going to do good to our fellow men, we must serve God with gladness. This is a point Spurgeon often makes, listen to him, I believe thousands of young people are kept from considering the gospel by the gloom of some professing Christians. Talk of religion by all manner of means, but above all live religion and let your religion be cheerful. Let the world see that you serve a good master. The world easily makes an excuse for not being religious because it gets the impression from too many Christians that to have God is to give up happiness. So let your faces gleam with the light of heaven. Don't go about to slander the king of Zion and say, in effect, that he starves his people and makes them sad and miserable. So then, a conclusion. Two or three last words for the sermon. First of all, beware of being like those speculative Christians who do not serve God at all, but are content to play games of puzzles with the Bible. I'm not sure what had uh, narked Spurgeon uh, at this particular point, but he's said this kind of thing several times in sermons at this point, that people who are just uh, taken up with a theoretical religion. The life of the Christian, he says, should be service, not speculation. If you have time and leisure, addict yourself to the pursuit of knowledge in the word of God and despise not prophecies. Give a fair place to everything, but still always understand that all the speculations in the world, all the understandings of prophecy in the world, are not worth the snapping of a finger compared to bringing forth fruit unto righteousness 
in the feeding of Christ's sheep and lambs. Brothers, he says, you will hear me expounding the revelation one day, that is, when there is not another of the elect to save. When all the chosen are saved, we'll preach upon the deep mysteries of Daniel and Ezekiel, but as so long as souls are unsaved, we mean to keep to the plain gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and the simple gospel of Jesus. Take this home with you, you who are so fond of knotty points. Serve the Lord, give up your stargazing, and if you want gladness, you'll find it there, and not in your endless genealogies and looking into futurity. Now, I think Spurgeon's overstating the case there. I think there is a place for expounding the revelation and working your way through Daniel and Ezekiel. But it seems that he's contending. I can think of a couple of possibilities, but I don't want to speculate without checking. Uh, he's suggesting that there are some who are obsessed with uh, the, the, the symbols and the, the signs and the darkest places in the scripture. And that really is still a problem. Some people get so hung up on details in, in the book of the Revelation. And it's not always easy to be interpreted and people get stuck there. And rather than serving God well, they get hung up on things that they cannot at this point truly understand. And so there's a place for giving them understanding, but there's also a place in reminding them that they're not to get obsessed with things that are less clear and that there's work to be done with regard to the things that are most clear. So don't overdo what Spurgeon's saying here. I think he's overstating his case, as I've said, but he's, he's making the point. Don't get hung up on what you cannot fully understand. Uh, rather, lay yourself out for that which is most plain, clear, and immediately relevant. Then there are other professors, too, who will do anything rather than serve God. So you've got those who are, are caught up with things that are, are too far above them, and then you've got those who are simply lazy. The little service they do is done as slovenly as possible, and they're always unhappy. They want a comforting ministry. They want to hold on to the promises. My dear brother, it's most probable that what you want is neither. You want to serve God, for there is gladness. So he says there are people who are always demanding a, a comforting ministry. This isn't uplifting enough. This isn't joyful enough. This is heavy. This is depressing. This isn't doing us any good. Spurgeon says, get on with something for the Lord. If some of you were to take a class in a Sunday school, you'd soon find your spirits revive. Some of you dyspeptic Christians who find the Sabbath drag heavily, if you were to go up into that alley or court to visit sick folk, you'd find your hearts grow glad. Only try it now and give us a report. And if you do not find it a pleasant thing, I am much mistaken. So perhaps we need to hear this. If we're inclined to the doldrums, if we're dragging our feet, if we're complaining that there's not enough joy and light and, and, and so forth in the ministry, how about ministering? How about serving others? For there is gladness. And then the last word he brings is a mere rehearsal of the text, serve the Lord with gladness. Don't be like Martha who complained because she served alone. Suppose we do, he says. The fewer men, the greater honour. And if Mary will not serve the master as we wish that she should, yet as she sits at the feet of Christ, we will thank God that there are diversities of operations, but the same Lord, and we will not get gloomy in spirit because we are not all serving God in one direction. Interesting use of the text, but uh, we'll take his point. We'll serve the Lord with gladness, not like the older brother who was resentful of what he hadn't received, but rather uh, we will 
will enjoy the feast that God gives, will get on with the work that God provides, and will enter in to all the blessings that the Lord bestows. So he says, the pith and marrow of what I have to say is, do not sleep away the few hours of this mortal life, but be up and diligent in the cause of Jesus Christ and be glad in it. Be glad if you're saved yourselves, that you are called to be the means of saving others. And so with holy service, let us begin a new period of time and go on till God shall take us up to serve him with perfect gladness where they see his face and never sin, but from the rivers of his grace drink endless pleasures in. May God help us to do that for ourselves. May the Lord provide for us all that we need in pursuing his good and his glory. A sharp knife for the vine branches is next week, John 15 and verse 2, Sermon 774. Until then, God bless you and may you and I serve the Lord with gladness for the glory and the honour of his great name.